In three, two, one. Welcome back to another episode of What the Bleep Are They Talking About? The podcast where we help you understand what everyone is talking about in the news today. I'm Jack. I'm Jennifer. And before we get started, make sure you share this content with everybody. And make sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on all the social media. And remember, guys, only follow us on our content or we get really sad. But seriously, make sure you get content from everyone because we don't want you being left in the dark like some people in the world today. And Jennifer, on this episode of the podcast, we have another special guest talking with us this evening. And it is Martha Bueno, and she's running for Miami-Dade County Commissioner, and to be exact, the 10th district in Miami-Dade. Now, interestingly... The seat that she is vying for has been held by Javier Soto, who, Jennifer, guess how long he has had this seat for? Like two years, right? 30 years. Oh, wow. I know. Well, we already did our research. That's why we don't sound too surprised. But he's actually being pulled out because of a term limit law that they passed in 2018. So he's not really going willingly. But the seat is open, and Martha is vying for it. Now, Ms. Bueno is a graduate of Florida International University, an entrepreneur, a small business owner, a realtor, a hemp farmer, the former vice chairman of the Miami-Dade Libertarian Party, and the co-host of Libertarios Hispanos podcast. All of this means that she is, by definition, Jennifer, a busy bee. But without further ado, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate this. And thank you for joining us for our question and answer segment, because we find that a lot of politicians these days kind of do a little bit of fluff pieces. People like to stay on their side of the aisle. They don't like to venture out there and ask some of the tough questions. And that's what we like to do on this podcast. So people know the setup for what we do here. For the next, I guess, 45 minutes, Martha is in the hot seat. Jennifer has the timer. I have the questions. Martha has the answers. And let's get started. So section one, who are you? So the perception of the political spectrum is, I would say, fractured. To progressives, liberals look like Republicans. To conservatives, the center-right looks like progressives. And for both sides, the opposing party looks like extreme authoritarian versions of itself. In other words, it's impossible to define yourself politically unless you 100% align with the party. So with that being said, what type of libertarian are you? Well, currently I'm the nonpartisan libertarian. Um, I was the vice chair of the Libertarian Party of Miami-Dade for four years, and I um, stepped down from being a libertarian in the party. However, I definitely uh, subscribe to libertarian ideas. And what does it mean to be a libertarian? It means that you believe in everybody's freedom all of the time. I do not believe that government has the right to tell us what to do with our bodies and with our lives. Now, something we've learned over the time talking with libertarians is that kind of the idea is to kind of push libertarians in the directions of running for local offices. So I'm just curious, did you give up libertarianism for kind of another reason you didn't really align with kind of the big L libertarians or was it really a move to run for a, a nonpartisan position? Well, I think if you're a libertarian and you follow the libertarian party drama, you know that I, um, I very much subscribe to it and I am a lifetime member of the national party. However, I left the libertarian party because of inner party issues and also because my belief that the libertarian party while our ideals are great and we've held these same ideals since 1971 since it was founded you know we had the first uh, woman in the united states to ever receive an electoral college vote as well as the 
first openly gay man who ever ran for office and received an electoral college vote. I think we've we've shown that since the inception of this party, we've been for all of these freedoms and we believe and we don't change our stances. However, um, the party itself, I, I feel like it's not going in a direction that I agree with. I also think that, um, you know, we, we claim that we want a smaller government and we want things done a certain way, but then as a party itself, we're very top heavy. We're very much like um, a business that instead of starting small and trying to build your, your momentum and build this, you know, people that like your party, like your movement and join, we're kind of doing it top down. We start these, you know, these chapters and it's all about the, the meetings and it's not about the freedom. And so I'm, I'm kind of tired of that. I was tired of it. I was tired of giving my time and my money for an organization where, um, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are okay with um, speaking ill of other people, of other activists. You know, everybody in this party puts in their blood, sweat and tears uh, for free. Nobody really gets paid. There's no, you know, this is this is a passion project for most of us. And to have other people within the party just tear you down, it, it's not something that I want to be a part of. I believe in building people up. I believe in building our, our mission up, building, you know, uh, coalitions. And it's just not something that I'm interested in continuing to pursue. I, I don't like wasting my time. That is something. So we went out canvassing, Jennifer and I, over the weekend. And we emphasize the idea of policy over party. Would you say you're someone who, who pushes policy over party? 100%. Do you right. think that parties have a future in this country? Because it seems like all you get out of parties, whether it be Republican, uh, Democrat, and even now you're mentioning that there's some inner party conflict in the Libertarian Party. Do you think it's, do you think parties have a future in the country when it's become so tribalized that no one seems to get along if you identify with the party and people just i guess i mean don't I, get listened to if they're subscribing to a party i i agree with that sentiment 100 percent, and i don't know what the future of parties in this country are hopefully they crash burn and die i mean you see this, you see this um, tribalism, right? It's like a team. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of people are like, no, I am this team, but they don't necessarily know what that team stands for. I've, I've actually, I use this question a lot when people say I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. Okay, well, what do you believe in? And a lot of times people can't tell me or they're like, oh, I believe in all of the things that the Republican Party believes in. I believe in all the things that the Democrat Party believes in. It's like, okay, like what? So I am a big um, advocate for cannabis. Not necessarily because I want to be stoned all day, but because I've seen it with my own eyes, how it helps people, uh, specifically people with certain conditions. And I talk about her quite a bit. My friend Giselle Delgadillo that lives here in my area, her son Bruno has Gervais syndrome. And um, he needs cannabis in order to not have the 300 seizures a day that he was having when he was a child. He's now down to maybe about one a week. Um, and that's because of cannabis. And so when I talk to people about this, you know, specifically Republicans, for example, they're like, oh, no, we, we can't because, you know, we're Republican. And then you talk to them about it like, well, you know, they just that concept of freedom doesn't necessarily hit them with these things. It's like, well, but cannabis is bad because the Republican Party told me that this is evil and it's bad and we can't do it. And so it's hard for me to reconcile otherwise really good people. And these policies, these ideas, and I think that's that's kind of what's happening around the country. We see people 
care more about their party, about their team, about their team colors, about whatever it is, rather than the ideas that they're pushing. And I think that's a horrible thing. I think we absolutely need to move away from that um, and, and really focus on the things that matter to all of us. Um, but I don't have much faith for that, especially the way I see things right now. You know, I, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm too much of a pessimist here, but um, I do see that we are in a bit of a dark place for this country right now. So that was actually one of my questions for you. So kind of being not a Republican, not a Democrat, kind of being off to the sidelines. What do you feel about the rhetoric about a civil war or national divorce? Do you think it's kind of over the top or do you think it's on point? Um, You know, I've been asked this before, and I have to say that I've traveled quite a bit. I travel all the time. I was just this past weekend in Colorado for a leadership summit. And when you travel and you go out, you know, my own city here in Miami or around the country, people aren't at war with each other. So um, I don't buy it. I think if you turn off the TV and you're not watching the news, you you wouldn't know that there's a civil war brewing or whatever it is that we want to call it. I think that that's something that that is being pushed as part of a narrative, just like the COVID narrative, just like, you know, other things. Are there people that would like to secede? Maybe. Uh, I personally know a few people that that like that idea, but I I just don't see it as like a, you know, the majority of people want want to break up or want to move away. I think depending on where you live, people value some things more than others. Um, here in Florida, we obviously value our freedom. We, we like that Florida stayed open. And so um, maybe if the whole country decided to go completely totalitarian, Florida would say, all right, it's time for us to break away. But right now, I'm not just not seeing that, that sentiment. I completely agree with that. So that's something I always bring up is that, you know, if you're online, people are screaming at each other 100% of the time. But when you walk out your door, no one's screaming at anyone. No one's screaming about civil war. And I think that's one of the reasons why I decided to put my foot in the game is because you hear these political pundits, and maybe you feel the same way. You hear these political pundits, and they're saying civil war, national divorce, all these things. And then you realize, well, no, that's not really true. You're just trying to, I don't know, what what is the term? Uh, Make the flame. Yes, posture, make the flames larger. And so it makes you want to be the, the leader in that instance and say, no, let's go in, in this direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I agree. I think that, that it's it's almost a make-believe make believe thing. You know, it's like, it's like this narrative that we're being sold, and I just, I don't see it. I've yet to encounter somebody that just is like, oh, you're from Florida? Well, you know, leave, and we don't want any part of it. Again, I was just in Colorado, and most people were like, oh, wow, Florida, it's sunny, it's beautiful, I love it there, this is great, you know, and people didn't really have any issues with me personally, I don't see people just out in the streets, like, you know, hurting each other, maybe it's just because I haven't lived through a civil war, and I don't know the signs, but I just, I'm not seeing it. So, in a Gallup poll released in October of 2021, American trust in media was at its lowest since 2016, with 36% of Americans uh, agreeing that they don't have a lot of trust in the media. So my question for you is, where do you get your media, and who do you trust? Oh, boy, that's a great question. Um, Who do I trust? Not a whole lot of people. But um, I I tend to get my media from many different sources. I don't like just one. So I subscribe to the Miami Herald. It's my local newspaper. But then I also subscribe to the Miami New Times, 
and then a lot of independent bloggers. And then of course I look for media outside of the US. Um, because I speak Spanish, I do read a lot about what's going on in the world um, in Spanish, especially uh, my Cuba news or my news about Latin America. And then because of my connections to the country of Georgia, I also look at their news. So I, I tend to just pull from many different places. I like a lot of news from the UK as well, which um, I, I think the, um, the Daily Mail sometimes is kind of a rag magazine type of thing, but also um, it's just interesting to see our news, you know, being told from another part of the world, and then it's easier to compare. Um, as far as like Ukraine goes, definitely check out news from Georgia. They're way closer to Ukraine. They're way more involved. They're also, uh, they also border Russia. They, they are also uh, invaded in two parts, in, uh, in two different regions in Georgia by Russia. So I think, you know, getting news from alternative sources or different countries kind of balances it out. What is your, that's so interesting. What is your connection to the country of Georgia? Well, um, I was just there in December. <laughs> um, and my connection to the country of Georgia is like multifaceted, but one of my dearest friends in the world lives there and works for the president of Georgia. So I've gone to visit him, but then also because of this and because I'm an elected official already, um, I was working with them for a sister city program here with Miami has not happened. Um, I'm hoping to, to be able to move that forward and help unite Miami Beach with uh, Batumi, which is a city in, in Georgia that's on a, a coast and has, has a lot of similarities, especially our history here in Miami with the Cuban diaspora. Um, Georgia is one of these countries that was part of the USSR, and they were um, that way until 1991, and then they have civil war, and they, you know, they had a rough start, a rough go of it. And right now they are um, pulling ahead. They are trucking along. They're doing fantastic. They are one of the top five countries in the world for safety. And um, they actually, I was able this last time that I was there to meet with 10 different parliamentarians, four of which were libertarians that are elected to, out of 150 uh, parliamentarians, four are libertarians. Um, I met with the president of the country. I've met with her multiple times, but I uh, was able to meet with her on this trip and, um, you know, get to see how things are done there and, and take ideas from, from Georgia for, for my own run here in Miami. One of which is in, uh, Georgia is one of those countries that has all of their titles on a decentralized blockchain, um, which I think is a fantastic idea. And I'd love to see that here in Miami um, because we have this issue where when you're going to purchase a property, um, you have to go through title insurance, and that's thousands of dollars plus weeks of time because you need to pay an attorney or an attorney's office to go through the records and make sure that what you're buying actually belongs to the person that's selling it to you. Well, when you have everything on a decentralized blockchain, you can make that exchange within minutes, you know, so it, it speeds up the process, saves money, and just, you know, so many reasons why not to go outside of your comfort zone. Why not leave the United States and see how other people do things? And I think that's uh, why I go there. I mean, just so many reasons. Why not, right? Do you think a lot of people in, in the United States are, are very privileged? And because of that, they're very unaware of, I guess, the problems in the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it happens to me all the time. I'm Cuban. I uh, My family has had a lot of issues. Uh, they, they left Cuba. My father was a political prisoner. And then we moved to Venezuela for some time after coming to the US. My father started a business in Venezuela. I 
grew up there until I was 15. And, um, you know, people don't understand what happens outside of America. And they, I think it, it shows when, you know, sometimes we're like, oh, well, we shouldn't have these people coming here. We shouldn't do these things. A lot of Americans aren't aware of what's happening. And when I talk about what's going on in Cuba or Venezuela, people are like, that's not a, none of our, you know, not our, not a problem or, or nowhere near it. Just today I tweeted that the difference between North Korea and Cuba is um, Cuba has a great propaganda. Um, something that North Korea doesn't have. People know that North Korea is a totalitarian dictator government which brutalizes its people. But when I say that about Cuba, they're like, Cuba's not that bad. You have no idea what you're talking about. Cuba isn't that bad. And I'm like, well, you know, there's 45 children that went, uh, that are currently in jail in Cuba. They were given swift sentences and sentences up to 20 years. Of those 45 kids, the vast majority of them have a 20-year sentence for going out and protesting their government on July 11th. Imagine if in the United States, children, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, went out to protest and were given 20-year sentences. We'd be outraged. This would be worldwide news. We'd be, you know, saying, what is going on here? There's over 800 prisoners, political prisoners, right now for those same July 11 protests. Um, Cuba has a history of brutalizing its citizens. And all you hear is, oh, but their health care is so wonderful. And, you know, these things, I don't think people realize how the rest of the world is is really you know how it works what's going on we live in a very privileged country and i am so grateful and thankful for this country because i can compare my life directly to that of my cousin who still lives on the island and if not for the fact that we here in america can make enough money to send back home to cuba to keep them afloat um my cousin's in her late 20s her only option for a job would be prostitution and that's something that I don't think people understand the realities of other parts of the world. So yes, we are very privileged in this country. And again, I am thankful for that. I am eternally grateful to this country having opened its doors to my parents so that I could be born here. But I do think that we are extremely privileged and I hope that people can open their hearts and open their minds to what's going on because you know, we need to be spreading these ideas of freedom, not the way we've been doing it by dropping bombs in Afghanistan. We need to really, you know, what is it that made America great uh, to begin with? Begin with, And I think that was our freedoms that made so many people want to come here and start new. You know, leaving your country isn't like an easy thing. Nobody just like wakes up one day and is like, you know what, I'm living a great life here, but I'm just going to move to a new country where I can't get a job, where I can't work, um, where I'm going to struggle for no reason. There's a reason people come to this country. And I think we could be a little more compassionate and um, make the process way easier. Because ultimately, we do need immigrants. We do need immigration. We do need people to help and work and, you know, all of that good stuff. Now, obviously, it's outside of your league running for county commissioner. But if you were in charge, how would you kind of reform the, the immigration process into the U.S.? Well, I mean, I am an open borders libertarian. So I would make it the way we had it for most of the history of this country. I would make it so that we have an Ellis Island type of thing. I think, a, you know, take down their information, make sure they don't have any communicable diseases, and then let them in. I, I mean, this obviously is not a popular stance, and I, and I would have no decision-making in this. So voting for me for commissioner was not going to automatically make America's borders porous. Um, you know, I have to point that out because I think a lot of people don't know what a commissioner does. Commission is just the job of finances. And in Miami-Dade County, that's a huge deal. We are the seventh largest county in the nation. 
We have a $9 billion plus budget. So this is a big seat and a big role and a big responsibility. But um, immigration is, it's, it's important to me. It's why I'm here in this country. Now with a $9 billion budget in Miami-Dade County, what would be an acceptable budget for you? Um, I don't know. You know what? The, the, the smallest budget we could possibly manage would be the acceptable budget for me. Um, our budget is three volumes. It's huge. It's not well organized. You really can't d drill down and see. Um, for example, the county commissioners make $6,000 a year. That's their salary. When you go and you, you, know, you fill out the paperwork, it says it very clearly. The job pays $6,000 a year. And then I went and looked at the county commission budget for the office staff for the commissioners, for whatnot. They also have, you know, a car allowance of $1,000 a month, and they have a $30,000 budget for whatever expenses come up. And then on top of that, there's an additional $18 million for 13 commissioners. Where's that money going? I don't know. I'm, I'm doing freedom of, of information requests, and I'm, I hired people to help me go through the documents, but it's not open and, and available for everyone to just see. You know, the reality is, with the 18 million additional dollars that, that are out there for, for this budget, that's probably over a million dollars per commissioner for their, um, in the, their district office. That's a lot of money that we're spending that we don't need to be spending. It's, commissioners don't need a million dollars for an office. You don't need to, I mean, I ran a business uh, that had a 35,000 square foot warehouse. We did not pay anywhere near a million dollars between a, a uh, you know, a hundred employees and that huge warehouse. Commissioners don't need anything near it. So where's this money going? And it's anybody's guess. So I would like to really just be able to go through it. One of the things that I would like to do in Miami-Dade County is put all of our county records, all of our budget on, again, in the cloud, in a system that is easily trackable. I don't know all of the systems out there. I would obviously want a, a um, to put out a bid to the company that's going to do the best job at the lowest price. But I am aware of a company named open.gov and that's what they do. They put all of the county records onto this system so that anybody anywhere can log on and see everything from receipts uh, for things that were purchased to the budget to where that money is going specifically. And I think that's important. The biggest issue we have is that people have no idea. There's a veil of secrecy. Uh, on what's happening in this county or in, across the United States, frankly. But again, I'm running for Miami-Dade, so I'm just going to speak about Miami-Dade. Um, but there's a veil of secrecy. You can't find out, at least not easily, um, you know, what's going on here. And I think that's a huge problem. I think people need to know, where is this money going? You can lose your home. If you don't pay your property taxes, you will lose your home. This is a big deal for people on fixed incomes, like the elderly, like the disabled. So, you know, if you have this... Thing where you're going to lose your home if you don't pay this money to the county obviously first of all you're renting for your entire life you don't have uh you don't own that property you know you're renting it from the government but then on top of that um when you find out some of these things you know we spend millions of dollars uh to, we give it to this company this this nonprofit called the homeless trust right that's a big county budget and um there's approximately twenty thousand dollars per homeless and yet Drive down downtown Miami. We have a ton of homeless that aren't being taken care of. So where is that money going? And then when you look at who owns or who's who's the chair of the homeless trust, it's Ron Book. It's Florida, one of Florida, definitely Miami Dade's largest lobbyist, and he's been in that position for 
well over 10 years. I think it's closer to 20. So where is this money going and why is the largest lobbyist for Miami-Dade County the head of an organization that's, supposed, that's receiving this large amounts of money? I think there's a lot of corruption and that's definitely something that I'm not okay with and I'm definitely running to remove or you know t start tackling it. So they're making so so on paper they're making six thousand dollars. That's what it's saying. But but you're saying that if you're looking at the budget, they're making a lot more than that, uh, upwards of a million dollars per year. Yeah. Yeah. That is. I don't know that they're making it personally. I think it's for right. their their budgets. It's for their things. You know, it's it's like everything with government, right? It's mm -hmm. there, there's some sort of hidden. You can't really get to it. The truth is, I don't know where that money goes. And if nobody does, as far as I've been able to ask and, and, and see, most people don't know where it's going. So, um, like I said, I'm putting through freedom of information requests, and let's see how close I can get to it. I mean, definitely if I win that seat, I will be able to find out exactly where that money's going, which is one of the things that I'm hoping for. Um, I want to know, and I want to be the person talking about it, because commissioners don't talk about it. You know, $1,000 for a car a month, you know, that's swell, but let's look at Miami-Dade's transportation. We've been collecting a half a penny sales tax for over 20 years to fix our transportation. We've collected over $3 billion for this, and yet our transportation, our public transportation is terrible. You know, So why are commissioners getting a, a car allowance, but the people of Miami-Dade have to be stuck with a system that isn't working? You know what? Give commissioners a bus pass, a rail pass, and stop giving them those $1,000, because if we actually have to live with the decisions we make, Maybe we'll make better ones. Now, what happens if you get into office and you do all of this investigatory work and it checks out, right? So you look into it and you say, oh, well, this kind of makes sense. I see why you're spending over here. I see why you're spending over here. What happens if you can't decrease spending any more than it already is? And I'll put it out there. So I work for a school district, and one of the things that we have to do when it comes to spending is we have to take three different vendors, and we have to take the lowest cost vendor. So I guess my question is, what happens if, if it's as low as you can possibly make it? What are you willing to cut? Let's start with the commissioner's office. Like I said, we get paid $6,000 a year, and yet there's a $19, billion, $19 million budget. It makes no sense. This is only for that office only for that the mayor has a different um budget everything else in miami-dade has its own budget so you know regardless of of not knowing exactly where that money spent i know that 18 million dollars for 13 commissioners 19 million dollars sorry for 13 commissioners is a lot of money there's no need for this and this our neighbors are paying for it right i've been paying for it everybody that lives around me has been paying for it um i think that that when when the, the commissioners are the ones deciding their own budget and they have carte blanche, you know, there, there's definitely a place to cut. They're at least right there, we can cut a few million off the top. Um, and like that, so many others. I think, again, it's immoral to say, you must pay us to take care of the homeless problem of Miami, even if it, you might become homeless yourself while you're doing it. I think that, you know, there's definitely things that we can cut back on um, I'm not saying to cut back on, you know, homeless services. I just think that there's much better ways of doing it. And why not put it out in the open so that everybody can take a look at it? And people themselves who are paying these bills can take a look and say, hey, I'm not okay with that. Let's work on this. 
that's one of the big things. Most people in Miami just have no idea really what happens in the commission meetings. It's really hard to get involved and look for it and see things. I've been, you know, an activist for a long time. And even I read the stuff and I'm like, what is this even saying? What language is this in? Because everything is written in legalese. Everything is written in a way that is, you know, you have to be either very involved or be an attorney to find out what's going on. Why? Why do we make it so hard, you, you know, to find when those meetings are happening and to be see them online? Uh, why do we make it so hard for the people to get involved? And, and that's something that I think we need to start changing. I don't necessarily have all the answers. I've never claimed to have all the answers. I invite people to, you know, pitch in. Tell me what you think. See, see a problem in Miami-Dade County? Go for it. Tell me about it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that sentiment anymore. Um, when it comes to the law, it, it's so incredibly confusing. I mean, if you look at something like the infrastructure bill, right, it's 2,000 pages. No one's reading that. When it comes to your, your common law, no one is, is studying their law. They're going out, they're living their lives, and then they're getting in trouble for meaningless things, right? So if we could take that law and at least dumb it down so that people can better understand it so they're not getting picked up for some mundane thing, I think everyone would be happier. Or remove it altogether. There's no reason for people to be picked up for mundane things. There's no reason for government to be telling people how they should live their lives as long as they're not hurting other people and, and taking their stuff. You know, don't steal from people. Don't get in other people's business. Cannabis. Cannabis is one of those things where here in Miami-Dade County, we have thousands of people in jail. Out of every dollar we pay to the county, 22 cents goes to our jails, goes to our system to keep people locked up. I think it's it's... There's so many things that we can definitely change. Um, decriminalize cannabis. Just make sure that people in Miami, make the police not focus, for example, on peaceful people growing a plant or smoking a plant. I don't understand how this is such a difficult concept for people who, I mean, we claim America, freedom. And then we're like, but not freedom to use a plant or however you want and not freedom to be able to go about your business um, and not freedom to maybe, you know, I don't know, go out when there was the mask mandates here. We, While the rest of Florida was open, Miami-Dade County and Broward County both shut down pretty aggressively for about five months. So I think that there's a lot that we can do to definitely decrease the amount of government. We don't need this much. So in that sense, so when you're talking about decriminalizing cannabis, my question then is, well, what about other drugs, for instance, such as fentanyl or cocaine or any other hard drug? Um, well, you know, I don't think that the commissioners have the ability to do so, but personally, I am for decriminalizing all drugs. I think, again, it goes back to personal responsibility. Just because you say that you can't do it or you shouldn't do it doesn't mean that people aren't going to do it. On the contrary, you know, we, we saw this with prohibition in the 1920s and it created gangs and it created um, the black market. People died from alcohol, not from, you know, the alcohol poisoning that people die from now, but alcohol was um, bootleg alcohol killed people because it was, you know, whatever, it was poisonous. Um, and then people died because gangs were shooting each other up to, you know, control uh, distribution, to control, you know, whatever it was. And so we see the same thing with, with prohibition now on drugs. And yet we have a hard time saying, you know what? If we just back off, maybe this will improve just the same way that alcohol prohibition, once we ended it, all of these things went away. Everybody's heard of Al Capone. Everybody's heard of Bugsy Siegel. You know, these things happened because of alcohol prohibition. 
So um, the MS-13, you know, gangs and, and all of these things that come from Mexico to bring drugs into the country. Um, we cause these problems in Latin America. That's another thing we're not talking about. Um, we cause these issues in Latin America with our drug policy. This isn't something that Latin America came up with on their own. The United States forced it upon them. And so these poor farmers, of course, they want to grow marijuana or cocaine or whatever the case may be because that's how they're going to make money. So then the, the gangs get involved and then they, they, you know, they destroy their, their, their areas, their cities, their towns, their, their rural areas. They destroy it and then they, people need to move. They need to get out of that situation. And then we have a closed border. You know, it's just like one problem after, after another. Um, that's pretty easily solvable by just decriminalizing drugs. And that's not even getting into the narco regimes of uh, Colombia, Venezuela, Cuba. The whole reason Cuba has money is because of this war on drugs. Um, that's where they get the vast majority of their wealth. Most uh, drugs that come into the United States on this coast come in through Cuba's waters into the Florida Straits. And that there's a price to be paid there. You have to pay the piper. So that's how the Cuban regime maintains power. So our war on drugs is way bigger than just people here in the United States taking drugs. It's, it's huge. And I don't think people understand this. And so this whole concept of I'm going to tell an adult what they can and can't put into their body, which doesn't even work because, I mean, I live in Miami and you go out to any club and the bathroom lines are huge because most people are in the stalls, you know, powdering their noses with cocaine. So it's not like it's, it's solving the problem. It's not like you can't just go out to any club and find drugs. You can. It's, it's freely available. So what are we doing? Why are we pushing these laws that make no sense? and um, prohibit free people from doing the things that they want to do. Again, I'm not for doing drugs. I'm not saying people should go out and do drugs, but the worst drugs happen because of this prohibition. So, um, you know, again, the Contras in, in, in Nicaragua, you know, that's what started the whole crack epidemic. We didn't have crack until really then. Why is it that we can't see the cause and effect of these laws and then we double down? We're like, oh, well now, a drug addict is going to go spend 50 years in jail, 20 years in jail, whatever the case may be. Um, why are we doing these things? Why is it that for alcoholics, we're like, hey, you need to go to AA, you need to go to recovery. You know, you can do it. This is a disease. But then if you're if you're a drug addict, you're a horrible human being and you deserve to lose all of your rights. You know, just we're, we're very not only inconsistent as a country, but we're also not humane in any way, shape or form. And this is something that I think there needs to be a bigger conversation. Again, it's not in, tied into the county commission job that I seek, but it is a problem, and it is something that I would like to see spoken about more often. Do you think there's a natural ebb and flow to to authority? So you're, you're talking a lot about freedom, and there was a time in the U.S. when we had a lot of freedom, and with that freedom, freedom came criminality, such as, I mean, you mentioned Al Capone and, and, and whatnot. And then we enacted authority to kind of combat that criminality. Do you think it's kind of at the point where we need more freedom and then maybe 50 or 100 years from now we'll need a little bit more authority to combat the criminality that arises from that freedom? And then we'll go back to saying, well, now we need more freedom. It just kind of ebbs and flows. Not at all. Um, I'm going to push back on what you just said. It wasn't that Al Capone happened and then we had prohibition. It was the other way around. We right, went right, right. to prohibition. And then the consequence of prohibition was these gangs. We removed prohibition, boom, gangs are gone. 
So, I mean, what comes first? It's not a chicken or egg scenario. It is absolutely the laws come in. And then people, of course, you know, let's take coffee. Coffee is the sort of drug, right? People crave it. Uh, you see it all the time. People talking about it. Don't talk to me until I've had my coffee. Okay. It's a drug. You know, some people crave it and they're, they need it before they can start their day. I am certainly one of those people. I can't start my day without a cup of coffee. If tomorrow the United States government said, you know what, coffee is terrible. It's illegal. I'm still going to want that coffee. And if you tell me, hey, Martha, I got you some Nespresso over here. You know, I'm going to go out of my way to get it. I am. It's just the reality of humans. Saying you can't have this thing doesn't make it all of a sudden just vanish and be like, oh, well, he didn't want this thing. I, the, the government's right. Um, you know, that's that's the thing about human nature. It's just like teenagers. And I have four kids and three teens. Yeah, they're almost all in the teen phases, um, 21 to 12. So I've gone through this with my kids. And there's nothing that humans want more than to get the thing that they can't have. So, you know, I'm, I'm really pushing back on that notion. We didn't have a drug problem in this country until we made it a problem with prohibition. No, and yes, so I, I agree with that. So it was more of a, a, a misspeak on my part, but mainly I was talking in general freedom. It kind of allows people to do what they want, and when people do what they want, then, you know, every now and again, some bad behavior can rise up in that. Not necessarily that, you know, I was wrong when it came to the, the, the uh, prohibition came before the, uh, the criminality. Uh, but when it comes to District 10, so with Javier being in that seat for 30 years, kind of what would the direction look like with you in that seat so would you kind of go along the lines of what he's been pursuing or would you go in a radically different direction or would it be kind of middle ground you know it's funny because um he himself was asked recently like what are the things that you're most proud of in your 30 years of working here and he had a tough time pointing to specifics so i can't say that there's something that he you know he's done some great stuff he he definitely brought agriculture to this area He's a big person on, um, he brought uh, cattle shows and horse shows to uh, the park that we have, this big tropical park that we have nearby. Um, so those are great things, and I really applaud him on that. He, he's trying to bring um, culture to this area. I think that um, those things were great, but there's, you know, 30 years is a long time. And so for starters, I do not intend to, to hold this position for 30 years, not even close. I couldn't term limit. But my intention at the moment is to stay in it for four years and then move on. I, I, I'm a business person. I am not a politician. Um, so my, my goal is to run Miami-Dade as efficiently as possible. And that's what I intend to bring to this, to this seat. I am an entrepreneur. I've started companies from zero. The last one I exited, um, I started from zero. In 2011, we were at Inc. 500, 5,000, number 97 on the list of fastest growing country, companies in America. Um, I grew it to $50 million uh, a year in sales and uh, over 100 employees, and then I, I left. Um, this is what I'm good at. This is what I excel at. I excel at efficiencies. Um, like I was talking about our transportation, we have a very terrible system of transportation, even though we've been collecting a lot of money for it. I would like to bring in the experts and push through um, the things that would actually improve it, the logistics that will make the buses run more on time, the technology like apps and stuff so that people can see where the bus is when it's arriving, if it's not coming at all, et cetera. 
I think that there's a lot that we can do. Again, going back to what I said, the you know putting our title, for example, on the blockchain, bringing um, an efficiency to our budget so that everyone can see what's happening, making sure that things run smoothly, making uh, government as small as humanly possible. These are the things that I'm really good at. And these are the things that I want to come in, implement, and leave. That's, that's the reality of it. Um, I want to, I always say, you know, the free market prevails. And um, how would the county be run if like Amazon ran it, right? If, if you could request a service and you get the, the product shipped to your home the next day, um, that's what I want for government. I want a government so efficient that the amount of money that you pay to keep it running, you're not upset over it because by golly, you're getting a value for it. Right now, um, even over COVID, our property taxes went up. You know, we didn't have any bus service. We didn't have schools. We didn't have services that we're used to. And yet our property taxes went up. So where's the value for people who live here? You know, again, you can lose your house if you don't pay it, but you're not even getting really a, a benefit. I have never spoken to somebody that's like, I am happy to pay those taxes because by golly, everything that the county gives me is just so worth it. You don't see that. And we were talking about that the other day. What if you were to take someone like Amazon and have them kind of give them a tax deduction and make them the ones to, to, to run the trash companies or to run some other government program because they have the assets available to them to, to make it more efficient than, than the government could run it? Oh, boy, you just touched on a subject that I absolutely love to talk about because I hate it so much, and that's government picking winners and losers. I think that... Saying, hey, Amazon, you run this thing because you're so good at it is exactly what we don't want. What we want is a more free market approach, right? So the best company to pick up your trash should be the one picking up the trash. And people should have a say in that. Um, we're forced here in Miami to use the government services. You can't, unless you're a business, then you have to pay for the trash collection service. But your taxes cover the county coming to pick up your, your garbage. Um, you are forced to pay for all of these things through the county. Um, and then the county also awards monopolies to certain companies like the electrical company. There's only one company that one can choose. And when they raise their prices, there's nothing you can do about it. So I'm not a big fan of saying, hey, Amazon, come on in and 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 do this. I mean, for Amazon, because they're a free market, you know, because they operate in the free market, they, they have to be efficient. Otherwise, somebody else is going to come in and take over. But once the government says, you're my guy, well, there goes efficiency. So I can't speak out of both sides of my mouth. I think that making the county run efficiently, um, and, and maybe that is keeping the government services in place, but making them run better, or maybe allowing competition to come in. I don't know what can be done because, um, again, I'm, I would be one of 13. I, I wouldn't have a magic wand to be like, and everything's better. Um, I would have to obviously convince 12 other people to get behind my policies. So my goal is not to pick these winners and losers. My goal is to allow, open up competition and allow the market to work. So I have one last question. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of thought provoking. Would you rather decrease taxes or would you rather have something like UBI? Decrease taxes all the way. I think your money belongs in your pocket and the way government runs everything pretty bad if I mean if these last two years under COVID and how the government ran things wasn't an eye-opening experience I don't know what is going to be I think the government generally does not a great job so yeah I can't get behind it 
I, I can't get behind UBI just because government is going to take this money, it's going to take more money from you, spend a lot of that on the bureaucratic part to then distribute poorly a smaller amount. Um, it's just not something that I think works. Keep that money in your pocket. That's It's your money. Why do you have to give it to somebody else to then be redistributed back to you? Now, what would you say, so I hear all the time from libertarians, you know, taxation is theft, but is there an amount of taxation that is kind of okay? Because in a sense, you are paying for, in a roundabout way, government services such as the pipes or the roads or so on and so forth. So is taxation really theft or, or is it more so some taxation is okay? Well, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I think taxation is absolutely theft. So, you know, under slavery, you had to work and you didn't receive any compensation, right? So at 100% of somebody taking your salary, that's theft, it's slavery. At what percentage is it not? Is it at 20%? Is it at 10%? Is it at 1%? The point here is when you are forced to do it, it's not of your own free will. There's a level of effect. You know, saying you have to give me this money for these services leaves you very little to, to choose from, leaves you very little choice in this. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's a way. And, and again, technology has advanced so much. Why couldn't we um, do a GoFundMe style government? You know what? I really believe in this road here. Uh, my tax money is going to go to this. I don't believe personally in war. So every penny that's taken from me in taxes to support a war across the world so that we can kill people. To me, that's, that is theft. I don't know what else to call it. So I think we're just about out of time, but give me two minutes. Why should everyone vote for you in district 10? Ooh, that's a great question. They should vote for me because, um, I'm going to get the job done. They should vote for me because they want to see Miami be as free as humanly possible. They should vote for me because Again, this is this is my core competency. I'm not good at running campaigns because I've never done it before. I am not good at being a politician and asking people for money, which um, I hate doing. I am good at running organizations. That is my forte. And um, if we want to keep having these same issues, we keep electing politicians to you know keep doing the same old, same old. And and that's you know some people might like that. But if you don't and you want to see something different and you want to keep money in your pocket, then Hopefully they'll consider me. And where can everyone go to find more information about you and your campaign? So I am on pretty much every social media platform at Bueno for Miami. Uh, yes, it's a little bit of a double entendre. Bueno in Spanish is good. So I'm good for Miami. Um, and then uh, there's also a website, MarthaBueno.com. Awesome. Martha, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. And for everyone out there, make sure you like and subscribe. Comment in the comment section down below. Follow us on all of our social media channels, and we will see you in the next one. Thanks, guys.